Podcast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Dennis, we call you because you're your label is the truth seeker at Roswell, and we're trying to separate the facts from the fiction. And for certainly after some recent developments uh, where two researchers came on our show and basically claimed to be the only true researchers on Roswell, I guess, you know, I have to start wondering why can't we all just get along and put this information together and find out what really happened? Because if we have different factions dealing with Roswell, one case, how are we going to deal with thousands of cases? It's become one big mess. And Dennis, what can we do to sort things out? Well, that's definitely a problem. It has been for me as a, as a researcher for years. There's several things involved. One, of course, is the ego of certain individuals that do this research. The other thing is the fact that there's 2,000 websites on Roswell, of which probably 90% is second, third, and fourth-hand research, requiring someone like myself or Stanton to do a lot of putting out of fires because it's wrong information, it's not verifiable, and hasn't been confirmed. The, the information is important and should be combined, uh, but it just doesn't happen. Consequently, I think the government's probably sitting there laughing because they don't have to cover it up. We're doing that ourselves with the way we operate. You're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. And by the way, we're talking to Dennis Balthaser, the truth seeker at Roswell. And certainly one of the things we're trying to get a handle on here, of course, is this alleged deathbed confession from mm-hmm. Walter Hott. Mm-hmm. And it appears in this new book that we talked about a few weeks back called Witness to Roswell. And I want to deal with the contradictions here because... In this confession, and there are 20 elements to it, one of which refers to him seeing, I'll describe it here, also from a distance, I was able to see a couple of bodies under a canvas tarpaulin, only the heads extended beyond the covering. I'm going to stop there, because he doesn't really have much more information on what he saw. But we have the Larry King show where his daughter gets on and says, no, 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 He didn't see any bodies. And, of course, nobody bothered to question her about it on Mm -hmm. the show. So, all right, you knew Walter Hart. Did he see any bodies? What's going on here? Well, the first problem I have is the fact that on that show that you're talking about, I believe it was mentioned that there was an affidavit by Hart in 91 and 93. I have a copy of the 93 affidavit. I don't know about the 91 affidavit. I'm trying to see if that's available anywhere. But in that 91 affidavit, a 93 affidavit, he mentions 10 items. Now, in 2000, the year 2000, Wendy Connors and I did an oral history videotape of Walter Hawk. And the reason we did that was Wendy and I were both at the UFO Museum and Walter was being interviewed by a French documentary crew. During that conversation, he mentioned that he had seen a body. First time that I had ever heard him say that. And I need to back up and let you know that from 1996 until 1998, I was a volunteer at the museum. I saw Walter Hart every day and talked to him, not necessarily about the UFO situation, but about his life. He was an interesting gentleman. And I had many, many conversations with Walter over the two-and-a-half-year period. But when Wendy and I heard him say that, we both went outside and looked at each other and said, we need to get that on tape. So we decided we would do an oral history on Walter Hall, and we were going to do it for research purposes, for history, and for his family. We would Nobody had ever done that with Walter. So we talked about his childhood growing up in Chicago, working at a drugstore, and delivering product from the drugstore to the Capone family. 
which he got a big kick out of because they tipped well. He talked about his military career and the 35 missions he had over Japan, the fact that he dropped the instrument in the mushroom cloud in the Pacific when they tested the bomb. He was a bombardier, had a, had a very good military career. He was stationed here with the 509th as a public relations officer, very close to Colonel Blanchard, the base commander and head of the 509th. In fact, when Blanchard died, they flew somebody into Roswell to let Walter know that he had passed away. That's how close the relationship was. Right, right. Got, he got out of the military and stayed here, had two daughters that were born here. He had several businesses in town, was involved with getting the Girl Scouts organized, the Red Coats for Roswell and things like that. So we did an in-depth interview with Walter that lasted several hours on videotape. The problem I have was that during that interview, he could not remember where he took basic training. He could not remember names or dates and was very evasive to any questions pertaining to the Roswell incident. He had no idea if Blanchard had talked to anyone about the press release uh, back in 47 or if anyone had told Blanchard what to say, but he thought that Blanchard talked to Rainey. The one key thing in his new affidavit to me is the fact that he says that Rainey was here for a meeting. If he was, why would they send Jesse Marcel, the intelligence officer, back to Fort Worth to Rainey's office with debris? He had already seen it. Why not take it straight to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, where it eventually wound up? As far as seeing the bodies, during our interview, Wendy had to press him for information many times. Uh, I know of four different times that she pressured him, and he said he didn't see anything. Now, the problem with that is, was he still covering up what he knew at that time or not? But when the new affidavit came out in the book, a couple of weeks ago that was done in 2002, he is extremely precise on dates, times, locations, and names, and things like that. So the problem I have is which is the real affidavit. The first one back in 93, uh, of course, didn't admit to anything. The one in 2000 where we interviewed him on videotape, he was very evasive and only answered questions after being actually pressured by Wendy Connors to answer them. And then 2002, the affidavit comes out, and he's so precise. Now, during the interview in 2000, on tape, we have his permission, we have Walter's permission to use that tape for research purposes and to give it to the family. We gave his daughter 10 copies of the videotape for the kids and the grandchildren with the understanding that Wendy and I would not sell the tape up front. That's on the tape. But we would use it and share it with, with good researchers because the information was important. A few weeks later, I got a threatening letter from his daughter saying that we could not use any portion of that videotape for any reason. The family wouldn't permit it. And then I was also threatened and told in writing I was threatened and said that if I cannot talk about any conversations I ever had with Walter Hall. This would predate her existence at the museum. She had no idea what conversations I had with Walter during that two and a half years I was at the museum. And the bottom line is that censorship. Yeah, I mean, is that even legal, Dennis? I mean, can somebody come in and say, you can't talk about conversations you had with a family member? It, it, you know, it's not like that he was her child. This was her father. I mean, is there even a legal basis for that? Well, she thinks there is, and, and I have all the documentation on that in the event that it goes into to legal action because I, I, do, I did keep the copies of the written threats that I got. But 
she has a double standard apparently because we were not allowed to say or do anything with the information we had from 2003 but yet in the new book there's the affidavit telling everything so is there a benefit to her in the museum and to the two authors or are we interested in factual information for research Right. Now, this brings up an important point, Dennis, that I'd like to ask you about. When we had Carrie and Schmidt on the show, we asked them specifically about the notion that there might be some kind of motivation for this affidavit being created when it was. And what we specifically asked them was, Hawk's daughter, does she have something to do with the founding of the museum? Carrie and Schmidt said, absolutely not. Now, we said, you know, well, okay, but Hawk had something to do with the founding of the museum. Yes, he did. Okay. That they did not acknowledge that, from what we gather, uh, Hawt's daughter does indeed now run the museum. And, and what I want to ask you, given that you were so involved with the museum, who owns that museum? Who funded its creation? And we've heard that there is a major expansion going on of the museum, something to the tune of $20 million or so. Who's funding that? What, what, I mean, who's behind that? They are classified as a 501c3 tech example organization. The original founders back in 1991 were Walter Hall, Glenn Dennis, the mortician in 47, and a gentleman named Max Littell, who was a local businessman. Mm -hmm. They opened up a museum on one of the upper floors of one of the bank buildings that comprised one or two rooms, had a few newspaper clippings. From there, they moved to 4th and Main Street across from the courthouse in the storefront, and I joined them in 1996, and that's where they were located. It was a small building that had several displays in it and newspaper articles and things like that. Right. December 31st of 1996, I helped move the museum into the present location, which is the old movie theater. I was with the museum from 96 to 98 when I was told to sever my relationship as a 70-hour-a-week volunteer. Now, either I made somebody awful mad or had done something because they told me to, to sever my relationship. Now, did they and give you a reason at this point, or did no. they just say goodbye, goodbye, Dennis, that's no, it? they said we don't, I think the wording was that we were asking you to sever your relationship, and I was a $1,000 lifetime member, and I got my check back of $1,000 and was no longer a member of the museum. Whoa. Now, back in September of last year, there was a note placed at the greeter's desk by Walter's daughter, who's the director of the museum, stating that Carol Siska and Dennis Paul Fisher are not welcome at the museum. It's dated in September with her initials. So since September of last year, I guess I'm banned from going to the museum. It's kind of ironic because worldwide I'm recognized as a good researcher and everywhere except here in Roswell at the UFO Museum, but I've learned to get above that because it's not as important as my research is to others. Now, okay, over this period of time, Nobody there has said, Dennis, this is why you are banned from no. this museum. No, no reason. I don't, I don't know to this day. And I worked very closely with Schmidt and Carey for several years. I did a lot of the research for them. In fact, in their book, they talk about one witness. And my name is in the back, in the biographies in the back. My name is listed as being the one who, who interviewed that witness. And then all of a sudden, when things went south between the museum and I, Schmidt quit corresponding with me. And I haven't I haven't seen or talked to Don Schmidt probably in two or three years. Mm. But this goes back to your original question about researchers working together. You know, I don't know why, and that that's a problem for me because if I had a, a reason for them treating me the way they do, I could understand it. 
I'm not even allowed, if I have friends or family in town, I can't even take them to the museum to see it because of the situation, which is bad to live here and have that kind of relationship. But on Walter's deal, the, the affidavit, uh, I've got a lot of questions about the preciseness of it, the dates he mentions, the people he mentions, and the information in the new affidavit because it doesn't jive with any previous affidavits he had or the videotape that Wendy Connors and I did. Are you suggesting that maybe this new version of the affidavit is manufactured rather than genuine? Well, one of the biggest problems is who wrote it. When was it written? I know the witness that witnessed his signature, and that means nothing more than she knew the person that was signing the piece of paper of the notary, but uh, there's a witness's name on there that no one knows, first name, neither Stanton nor I are familiar with the name or know who it might be. The one done in uh, 1993 was witnessed by Max Lapel, one of the other co-founders of the museum. Max's big deal was to make money for the museum. He was a businessman, and, and mm-hmm. he did did well with that. And the museum gets 150,000 people a year. They are big business for this town. Now, they refused to work with the city all last year trying to do this planning for the festival. And the president of their board recently went to the city council and they requested $8,000 in lodgers tax that was given to them while he stood there and lied about them cooperating with the city all year. But this is this is a fight here that no one's going to fight because of the, the revenue they generate for the city. Well, Boy. so basically, and Dennis, there are a lot of our listeners who heard about this affidavit, who knew that Hawt had been involved in founding the museum, who knew that the museum's been undergoing expansion efforts, and who know that Halt's daughter apparently runs the museum, and wonder exactly what you're sort of alluding to, that maybe this affidavit was created to essentially reignite the interest in the case. Now, yeah, it's its 60th anniversary, but there are a lot of people in the UFO world that now probably believe that we'll never get to the bottom of what really happened at Ross that it's become a myth and that you can't really investigate a myth or something that's passed into mythology because people are not going to really look at the research. They're going to believe what they want to believe. And if there's an affidavit that says now that Hawt saw bodies, that this is going to mean that all of a sudden there is more of a reason to generate interest in this case. There is now a renewed, invigorated sort of a media push behind it. And again, and I'm, I'm wondering about this expansion of of the museum into a larger facility. We heard about the creation of boy, uh, an amusement park around the UFO topic there, which I don't know that I personally feel that this is like a good thing, you know, to turn this into entertainment. Um, well, I have I've had a similar problem being on the planning committee because every week I would sit there and listen to the carnival atmosphere that was going to take place during the festival with the bands, the the alien costumes, and and all that. And as a serious researcher, I have major problems with that because I understand, you know, that takes away from the seriousness of it. But to be honest, the revenue for Roswell is the UFO story. You can't go downtown without seeing storefronts with aliens in them, drawings or pictures on the windows. We have the only flying saucer-shaped McDonald's in the world. We have a Walmart that has aliens on the front uh, face of the building. It's big business. (laughs) 
I think most of you know that I love radio, and so I decide to look for the ultimate receiver for AM reception because I want outstanding AM reception day and night, especially night where it gets difficult. So I've discovered that C-Crane's CC Radio Plus has earned the reputation of having the best AM reception, which is exactly what C-Crane intended when they designed this gem of a radio. Along with its legendary AM reception, it also has excellent FM reception, a weather band, TV audio, and the ability to run on batteries for, and listen to this, 250 hours. So whether you use it as your bedside radio in your kitchen or at work, the CC Radio Plus will give you the pleasure of clear AM reception. The radio is designed for the clarity of the human voice and the benefits of useful features like five memory buttons per band. They work just like memory buttons in your car, a sleep timer, an alarm clock so you can get up at the right time, and a weather alert that now works as an all-hazards alarm. You know what I want you to do? I want you to buy that. Radio, but also support this show by visiting techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane. That's techbroadcasting.com slash ccrane to order the CC Radio Plus for $164.95, and that includes free ground shipping and a free ccrane catalog. Place your order today. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, Send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We have Dennis Paul Faser, known as the Truth Secret Roswell, and we're trying to separate fact from fiction. So what we're talking about right now is the fact that Roswell, the UFO case, is big business. It draws lots of tourists to Roswell. I guess that's a mixed bag. But does it also hinder genuine research, or does it not matter? It does hinder it because many of the radio interviews I did for the festival, I got the same response that you're giving me about the carnival atmosphere of it and taken away from the seriousness. To go back to your comment about Walter, I knew Walter well, having been with him every day for two and a half years. Walter was as honest as the day is long, I felt. And it's a catch-22 for me because his relationship with Blanchard was so close that if anybody knew what was going on, it would have been Walter Hall through Colonel Blanchard. They were that close. He looked up to Blanchard as an uncle or a father figure, respected him. He was a lieutenant. The base commander was a colonel. He'd be called into his office and say, Hawk, what do you think about this? And he said, I'd sit there, look at him, tell him what I thought, and then he'd make a decision. Sometimes he agreed, sometimes he didn't. But Walter could well have been covering up what he knew all these years in the previous affidavits and the interview that Wendy and I did. But to come out with the affidavit that he came out with as precise as it is, and that's my major hang-up, is mm. The precision of his wording and the way it was written, I believe in the book that, uh, or maybe in your interview with Schmidt and Kerry, they said that this was arrived over years of questioning him. But that doesn't answer the question, who wrote it? I mean, if he signed it, he would have 
by by law notarizing it and all that would have had to agree with the content of it. But I don't, I'm not sure that he wrote it, uh. and, and that's the hang-up for me. As far as profiting for the museum on this new museum they're talking about, they're talking $24 million. His daughter has changed the bylaws. Originally, the three founders wanted the museum to be free to the public forever. She changed the bylaws where they now charge $5 a head to go into the museum. She also changed the bylaws where as the paid director of the museum, she is a voting member on the board of directors. As the daughter, she is a lifetime member of that board, not necessarily the director, but for her lifetime, because she's a daughter, as all the other children of the three founders are, they're lifetime members of the board of directors. That's written in the bylaws. Oh, boy. Well, okay, so the museum at this point, can we dismiss the museum, though, as now a viable source for information? Because it obviously looks like something's being done here to profiteer, don't you think? Well, I think the museum needs to be audited. To be honest with you, I think they need an IRS or attorney general audit because as a 501c3, they're supposed to be educational, and I don't consider selling shot glasses and T-shirts and hats to be educational materials. No one locally is going to initiate that, but I think it's something that should be done because I think there's there's a lot of questions about the way the museum is run. I personally think that the museum is a widely needed facility for the public, and I think originally the way it was set up by the founders, it was intended to be that way. But under the leadership they have today and the hand-selected board of directors that they have, to me it's, it's running in the wrong direction. You know, I was looking in the current issue of UFO magazine where they reprint the affidavits. And I'm noticing that if you read this, the beginning and end are virtually the same, but the middle portions were changed, as if they took the original affidavit, the one that goes back to, I'm trying to see what date the previous version was. 1993? Yeah, the one from 1993. Mm -hmm. And the one that's was done originally in 1993, and then they took that and used as the master for the one for December 26, 2002, in that they took the beginning and end and filled in more middle information. Of course, that might be a legitimate way of doing it in the sense of speeding the production of the document, but it also means that there might be some suspicions here that maybe the thing was kind of predetermined and then they either urged him or impressed upon him the need to sign it. But did he see the full document? Who knows? Do you guys know, and I'm going to ask the question, do you know if a affidavit is put in a book form, is that then public information? Well, if it's published, then it's a matter of public record. If it's published, sure. Okay, there is a note in there that, that the, in the book that it cannot be used without the family's permission. Well, be used for what, though? I mean, you have to differentiate between being used for commercial endeavor like it was used in the Carrie and Schmidt book. That's one type of usage. Um, versus approved by the family. Well, right, but that, that's one type of usage. Now, if you're going to use this in a research document, I suspect the dynamics are probably a little different. I'm guessing that... Also, um, and I don't, Schmidt and Carrie didn't send us the book, so we don't, I don't have the book. Gene, I don't think you have the book, right? No, to this day, I know I gave the address for myself and right. David to the publisher's representative. So we don't, we don't have the book. But, no, but I was surprised when I heard that on the interview that, that you didn't have a copy before the interview no. was done. And we still don't. Yeah, they, 
No, we still don't. So I'm wondering, you know, the way G and I are both published authors in the high tech world, you know, if the affidavit's in there, then it might fall under the copyright of uh, their book. Um, and whether yeah, the, reason I, own... the reason I asked the question was because the affidavit is showing up in the internet everywhere in in total. Well, well, Dennis, it's not like anybody like respects copyright issues when it comes to the internet. The internet, yeah, sort of have, has a mind of its own. This goes back yeah. to Wendy Connors and I being told that in writing from Walter's daughter in writing saying that we cannot talk about anything that was in that interview right and then you turn around and you release the, the new affidavit in schmidt and carrie's book for the whole world to see yeah at this point until i see the affidavit with my own eyes and see the signed notarized version i don't even really believe it's real but that's just me well we had asked him in the interview about the bodies uh, he agreed that uh, he was some distance from the craft at the hangar and the body and then he couldn't remember if it was intact or in pieces. He described the body as being small, 10, 11-year-old child, beat up, long arms. He thought more than one body, then he changed it to one. When when asked, you saw one body, he said he didn't even see one. When asked again, you saw a body, he shook his head yes. So I don't know if he was getting tired of the questioning by, by Wendy mm. or if he was actually still trying to cover up what he knew and then released it in 2002. Or maybe it comes down to this, which may be totally irrelevant. He just didn't care at that point. He just said whatever people wanted him to say. And then maybe he was persuaded, and we're using the conspiratorial theory here, ladies and gentlemen. I do not pretend to have any real information. He was just persuaded by the family. Look, say you saw the bodies already, and this way we could make a few dollars in a book after you're gone. Come on, be a nice father. Okay? Yeah. That's right. I mean, that's the way it kind of looks. That's a possibility. Um, but then again, there was that weird moment on the Larry King show about the 60th anniversary event. And um, Hawt's daughter, I don't know, there were some odd things that came out of her during the show that almost made me think that she didn't even read the affidavit. It was kind of odd. Well, that, that's, that's what caught my attention. In fact, I got, I've copied the transcript from the Larry King show as well as have it on videotape, and I've looked at it several times and read the transcript, and she absolutely said that he did not go to the crash site. But yet in the new affidavit, he says he went several times and brought some debris back to his office. I hmm. think so, she, being his daughter, ought to know what he did. At least he should have told particularly her. Particularly if she's yes. saying that nobody can use the affidavit without their permission. You know, you, you should know what's in the affidavit before you go put restrictions on people right well there's a bottom line issue here which is that if there's a museum and the museum is a valid legitimate non-profit organization then it should be uh, dealing with understanding and getting to the bottom of this whole situation not protecting uh, any sort of commercial interests uh, to me something uh, doesn't smell right there quite frankly well, it hasn't smelled right to me for several years since I've no longer been with the museum, and, and I, I cannot get any local support here in town at all. And I think it's probably a, a profit motive because of the money they generate. Mm. And that's unfortunate, you know, for a serious researcher to live here and try to get to the bottom of a 60-year-old question and, and not be able to do it with the sources that are available. If you're looking for a better way to present or collaborate during your conference calls, your solution is simple. 
web conferencing with GoToMeeting. During your call, everyone logs on to GoToMeeting.com, and your computer screen shows up on their computer screens. It's like you're all in the same room. GoToMeeting is perfect for sales or product demos, training, or real-time collaboration. Plus, you're not charged per minute like other providers. You can meet as often as you want for as long as you need. With GoToMeeting, you can meet with anyone, anywhere, without leaving your office. You'll not only save time, but money, too. See for yourself. Try GoToMeeting free for 45 days. Just visit GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. That's GoToMeeting.com forward slash podcast. Try GoToMeeting today. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to conspiracyjournal.com or email Tim Beckley at mrufo at webtv.net. It's all out of this world. with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. During the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney, we're talking to the truth secret Roswell himself, Dennis Balthaser, trying to set the record straight about some of the confusions and contradictions. So, Dennis, 60 years later... Is it just too late to get any more information? Is this it for Roswell? No, I don't think so, and, and I'll give you some reasons. There were other books came out during the, the 60th anniversary, one being Jesse Marcel Jr.'s book, right. which is an excellent book that I'd recommend for anybody. Jesse and his family, his wife and children, have lived this story for 60 years and not gone public with it in book form before, but he was told by his dad before he died to go public in book form with it, which he has now done. He talks about a meeting that Jesse Jr. had in Washington, D.C., where he was taken into the basement of a government building by a government official who asked him, what do you really know about Roswell? And Jesse said, well, you tell me what you know. And the guy, to the guy told him, he said, Roswell happened, but you never saw me, and went back home. His dad, until the day he died, said that it was not of this world. Jesse is the only living person that I know of that handled the material as an 11-year-old child. So Jesse's, Jesse's research and Jesse's book is, is well worth the read. Now, Stanton Friedman and I think it's Kathy Catherine Martin put out a book about the Betty and Barney Hill episode. Mm -hmm. In that book, Betty claims to have seen a book on the craft that had writing in it, which would be referred to as symbols. Before Jesse Marcel, Major Marcel died, Linda Corley interviewed him, and he drew some diagrams of five different symbols that he remembered being on the I-beam. If you look at those two, at the Betty Hill drawing and at the Jesse Marcel drawing, to me there is a similarity in the symbols. I have a new editorial where I show the, both drawings and I, sh and I raise the possibility of a similarity in the symbols by Betty Hill and by Major Marcel. 
we're running out of time with witnesses. They're passing away on us. That may be the intent of the government to just hold out until everybody's gone and it's all secondhand information. But I'm not going to give up on Roswell. We've had four excuses over 60 years, none of which have verified what happened. I think we're still lied to. My own personal theory on Roswell is that whatever was recovered, we still don't know what we have, where it's from, how it operates, propulsion, guidance systems. And until we know that and we get the military advantage out of it, they're not going to go public or admit it ever happened. But you see, that sort of underscores the idea, Dennis, that we're not going to ever figure it out. And looking at the infighting that's going on around the people associated with this investigation and with researching Roswell, it's not like the government has to really do anything to Guys, spread this information. That, the thing that surprised me the most about the new affidavit, and I mentioned this to, to Stan Friedman, Stan is the original civilian researcher on Roswell going back mm -hmm. to 1978. Mm-hmm. Stanton was not aware that the affidavit existed. He's supposed to be heavily involved with the museum. They sell his books and the DVDs and things like that. He's an honorary board member, but Stanton Friedman was left out of the picture. This was entirely done by Schmidt and Carey and Julie Schuster. Hmm. See, there's something else about this, and I had a talk with Bill Burns about this situation because I had met with Bill in New York last month, and we are talking a bunch about this topic right when the, uh, the affidavit was becoming public knowledge. And uh, Bill said to me, you know, it's something you have to realize about this situation is that Haught and uh, Blanchard were so close mm -hmm. that anything that Blanchard knew, Haught would know. And I said to Bill, you know, Given the amount of secrecy that goes on in the military and given the compartmentalization of information, I think it's entirely possible to assume for a moment that Blanchard knew things that Haught did not know and that Blanchard was uh, a military man, first and foremost, before he was Haught's friend. He was a military man and that it was entirely conceivable that there would be chunks of information that would be in his possession that he would never reveal to Haught. So, uh, you know, it's interesting to me how people say, well, you know, these guys were best buddies. They were like, uh, you know, father and son, whatever. And I look at this and I think, you know, ultimately when it comes to the military, and I've never been in the military, no family member of mine has served in the military. But I look at it and I think, well, given how it appears that secrets are very well kept in the military, I think ultimately... It's erroneous to presume that whatever Blanchard knew, Halt would know as well. Well, I think you're a soldier first. Right, exactly. That's right. So as a good soldier, he would have to observe whatever he was told, whatever restrictions placed upon him, which, if this is really what happened, would probably reflect on his entire life. Sure. I mean, well, how does that sound to you, Dennis? I mean, do you think that's conceivable? Sure. Blanchard knew about secrecy because of being the head of the 509th Bomb Wing. Exactly. Which, which dropped the atomic bombs, and that that information was kept quiet for 10 years with about 50,000 people involved. Mm -hmm. He went on to become a four-star general, was considered for Joint Chiefs of Staff when he had a heart attack in the Pentagon and, and died in, the th in his 50s. That man moved up very, very fast. Right. As, did, uh, as did Jesse Marceau, Major Marceau. He retired as a light colonel. Had Hawk decided to stay in the military because of the relationship he had with Blanchard, I would guess that Hawk would have probably wound up a light colonel or a colonel himself or maybe even one star because of the relationship they have. 
or had. But I do think Hawk was probably not privy to some of the information that, that Blanchard had. Right. He was a public relations officer. That meant that meant working with the local the local people to keep a good relationship between the military and the civilian population, which they did here in Roswell, had an excellent relationship. I, I'm just thoroughly confused about this new affidavit because of the the detail after interviewing Walter and he couldn't remember where he took basic training. Now that had nothing to do with the Roswell incident, but he couldn't remember it. And then in 2003, I talked to a radio host uh, last week. She said she came here in 2003 in June, which would have been six months after his affidavit was supposedly signed. She wanted to interview Walter and Glenn Dennis, the mortician. And someone at the museum told her that she could not, she could interview uh, Glenn, but she couldn't interview Walter unless his daughter was present. And I know for a fact that hmm. Julie shut off interviews with Walter and with Glenn Dennis in recent years, that she would no longer allow them to do interviews for some reason. What was his physical and mental condition, Walter Hawk, towards the last part of his life? He had diabetes and was starting to age. He was 81 years old and, and went through the same thing elderly people go through. And it looked very obvious on, on the videotape that he had started to age and started to lose some of his memory, either dementia or the, the first stages of Alzheimer's, perhaps. I don't know that for a fact, but that's that's the impression I got reading his body language on the, on the tape mm -hmm. and, and being in front of him, uh, which is a normal thing for older people. But there's just too much difference between the 1993 affidavit, the 2000 videotape, and the 2002 affidavit that was... And of course now, there's probably very little chance we'll ever get to the bottom of it. Well, with the control that his daughter has on information, uh, that's probably a true statement. So this is really frustrating because essentially what we've got is a situation where it does look like commerce is driving this whole situation. You know, when you talk about research in the academic realm, when you talk about research even in the corporate realm, different universities, different companies will collaborate. They'll pull their efforts. There are such things as peer review. And I brought up the term peer review to Kerry and Schmidt, and they behaved like they didn't even know what I was talking about, which I thought was really fascinating, given that here they are, you know, basically saying we're the only true researchers. And, and Dennis, I mean, you heard the show. I basically, when they said that, I, I kind of lost it a little bit, and I started doing a thing where I said, you know, <laughs> Oh, I hear voices in the back of my head. I hear, I hear Kevin Randall. I hear Stan Friedman. I think I mentioned you as well, Dennis. Yeah, I said, I hear Dennis Balthazer. It's like, you know, uh, these guys, they've been looking into this a little bit too. Uh, but it seems to me like, you know, and they were talking about, uh, Karen and Schmidt were talking about how well we've done all this research. Why should we share it with anybody? Which is exactly how you don't gain any real understanding or ground. So it's almost as if, at least with regards to this particular episode, even though there might be some absolutely fascinating facts underneath of all of this, between the government's ability to cover it up, between the complete lack of an ability of any of these researchers, really, and I'm not trying to say this to you, Dennis, but it looks like a lot of these people involved either don't want to talk with each other, or in the case of Stan Friedman, and you know, we really like Stan, we've had him on the show more than a couple of times, but whenever, whenever we've talked to Stan about things that don't fall squarely into his view of this phenomenon because he always talks about how you know don't don't bother me with the facts my mind's already made up this is like mm -hmm. one of his laws meanwhile 
Stanton, it seems to me, I'll keep Gene out of this particular part of it, but it seems to me like Stanton is completely guilty of this himself. You know, when he talks about the nuts and bolts uh, aspects of this, it's like, look, we don't well, know he, what... Stanton, I mean, Stanton is very set in his ways, there's no doubt about it. Uh, right. A good example is the Plains of San Augustine. Nobody else, no other researchers, or very few researchers, support his theory about the Plains of San Augustine in relation to the Roswell incident, but he sticks with that, you know, tooth and nail. I, I love Stanton, and he's been a big inspiration for me, and I was hurt when this affidavit came out, and the original Roswell researcher wasn't even brought in on it at all. And that told me volumes about the relationship between Don Schmidt, Tom Carey, and the UFO Museum. And, you know, if anybody should have had access to the information, I would think it should have been Stanton, at least as an informant or as an advisor or some some part. Right. But he knew nothing about the affidavit himself. I talked to him before the festival, and I asked him, I said, you know, I asked, bluntly asked him, did you know anything about it? He said, no. I mentioned it to Julie, and she said, we'll talk about it when I come down. Well, after the festival, I talked to him, and she never talked to him about it. Mm. So there's an agenda involving the museum and Schmidt and Carey. That's no doubt about that. And I'm probably in big trouble for saying the things I said today, but my brutal honesty doesn't let me be any other way. I want to get Listen, to the Listen, we're in trouble already, by the way. You're just joining the choir here. <laughs> David and well, I have been in trouble for what we've done on the show ever I'm in since day one. You're in great company. Welcome to the club, my friend. <laughs> but I, I think Schmidt and Carey owe it to the researchers and to the public to tell us when was that thing written, who wrote it, and how was it done? Because just to, just to put an affidavit out in writing it means really very little if you can't back it up and substantiate how it was done or where it was done and when. Right. And, and you know, know what, what occurs to me? I would think that in this day and age, you would accompany that affidavit with a video camera of him reading it. Even if he didn't write it, even if he approved the text, he'd be sitting there reading it. Yes. To the camera. And why don't we have that? With you see, I, I do have David. I do have a videotape two years prior to that where he said he never didn't know anything about any of it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you want to compare apples and, and apples, let's get my videotape and let's get that affidavit and let's compare them. Even if he signed it. We have to say, is this man under sound mind and sound mind and health? Was he capable of signing a fairly involved document with a lot of extensive detailed information? Was he capable of doing that? I don't and believe that was, was his writing. Well, it may not be his writing, but someone else could have written it for him. Someone else could have done it on mm -hmm. a word processor or whatever and said, Indeed. okay, William, is this what you want us to say? Is this what you want to say? Is this what you want to approve and get his approval? Mm -hmm. No matter who wrote it. If he approved it and believed what was said in that document, why could they have him read it for the camera? Yeah, particularly in this day and age. Right. You know, when video cameras are absolutely uh, part of the culture. So well, I'm, I'm sorry that I can't be more help to you, but I have I have a tremendous amount of questions about this affidavit. I really right. do. Uh, I like Walter dearly. I saw him every day and talked to him, visited with him, and, and had a good relationship with him before his daughter became involved with the museum at all. And I just don't like the direction that things are going with the UFO Museum as far as the UFO community or even the public. Because people go to the museum and they leave there, and I know this from experience, that they think they've been to the Holy Grail. 
And whatever they are told, most people will believe it because they don't have the knowledge in the first place to know, understand about Roswell. So people that come here, probably 80% of them, 90%, come out of curiosity. They've heard the word Roswell. There's a museum. Let's stop see what it's about. But uh, as far as, you know, the factual information, there's very few, if any, people that are employed or volunteer there that have good knowledge about the incident. It's a place for our older people in town to to volunteer time as greeters or as, you know, as whatever. It's in dire need of some, some new leadership. Well, it, it seems like that's really the case with the entire field of this study, Dennis and, and Gene. We need new blood here, but I contend that it's even a little worse than that, that in the same way that people have always looked at this situation and they've separated everybody who's involved with this as either being a believer or a debunker. You know, and you've, you've always had to fall into either one or the other bucket. You can't, there's no being in the middle. You can't be a thoughtful skeptic because, oh, that means you're a debunker. So there's a complete lack of understanding of the difference between debunking and being skeptical. But I think what we now have to do is introduce this notion of we've got the people who are interested in getting to the bottom of this in one pile. And in the other pile, we have people who see this as a money-making opportunity and see it as that primarily. Now, you know, look, there is nothing wrong with earning a living. There's nothing wrong with feeding yourself and your family. Um, you know, if someone's going to devote a huge amount of time to this topic, I, I think of someone like Richard Dolan, who it, 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 it devotes an insane amount of time and effort to digging up real information on this topic, but he has a family and, and, and he has to feed them. So, you know, there is an understanding that one has to earn a living here. Gene and I maybe one day will will come around and understand this. Right now, we're both completely out of our minds doing this at a loss, um, a financial loss. We're completely insane. Right. That we have to admit that. I want to yeah. also admit, by the way, that <laughs> even though we're at a loss, we do have a couple of people who kind of help pay a couple of bills. You know. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's one 800 728 2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. 
This is the Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney and Dennis Balthaser, the truth secret. Roswell is joining us, commiserating with us, maybe feeling sorry for us. I don't know. <laughs> I don't feel sorry for us. What are you talking about? But no, ultimately it boils down to either you're looking for the truth or you're looking to make a buck. And I don't think that there's much overlap in those two places, unfortunately. Well, I, my wife and my webmaster have been asking me for the last 11 years to write a book, and I've not done it. The reason I've not done it is because everybody's writing these books, and I just, just haven't done it. I, I enjoy doing the, the interviews like this show and other shows. I enjoy writing editorials every other month. They're posted on 24 websites, UFO Magazine, sharing my research in that, that form and lectures when I can get them. But I, I lose somewhere between two and $4,000 a year doing this. Mm-hmm. The thing with the affidavit is that is very critical information. If it is true, then I think Schmidt and Kerry are required to share how it was obtained and get that information out to validate it. Because this research is absolutely worthless without validation and confirmation. Right. I'm not saying that, that he didn't do what he says is in that affidavit. I'm not saying that at all, but it certainly is different than the one two years prior where we did on videotape. And maybe there's a reason for that. Maybe he was still covering up two years prior. I don't know that for a fact, but I think if we could get more information on how it was obtained, not necessarily the content, but how it was obtained and, and that type of information would be helpful. I'd also I'm be curious lost. why his own daughter doesn't seem to be aware of what's in that document. That yeah, really that, that bothers them. Be questionable, definitely. I mean, she she puts restrictions on people as far as what they can say about her dad, but then turns around and doesn't have the knowledge herself to even know what's in the affidavit. Oh boy, this is made so difficult for this UFO field. You know what? Let's look at the fact that it's getting more and more difficult now to get information on Roswell. Let's talk about a plan of action in the next seven or eight minutes we have left. Dennis, what do you think Roswell researchers should do to get whatever information we can get at this late stage to find out what really happened then? Well, we, we still have to get any living witnesses that are, are still alive to give deathbed confessions or, or get some information from those that were actually here and or were involved in it in one form or another. And we're still trying to do that. We're, once in a great while, we still find someone who we hadn't talked to before who, who has more information. I've got one or two right now that I'm working. But then that information has to be made available to other respectable researchers to share it and expand it. Uh, I work heavily with Stanton Friedman and Frank Warren, and when something comes up, the three of us automatically copy each other all our correspondence. We're not keeping it to ourselves. We're working among each other, and that could be expanded even further out if if needed. For the time being, usually we keep it to the three of us so we can obtain information, see if it's valid or if it it requires further research. And and that has to be done. Uh, Schmidt and Carey, by being the the only proactive researchers, that 
completely takes them out of the picture and takes me and Stanton and everybody else out of the picture. Mm. Uh, I, I, you know, as we speak about this, guys, it seems to me like people like Mac Tony's are right that, you know, as far as Roswell goes, we're going to try to get more information, but it really looks like at this point, this is one for the history books, and it's going to be diluted even more by every action that the city of Roswell takes to commercialize this. It, it has this really weird effect of making it more visible in the public eye, but uh, sort of delegitimizing it and making it into more of an entertainment thing. I was really upset when I saw that Larry King thing and that that absolute ridiculous stuff that this Shermer guy was doing with the yeah. little bobblehead toys and stuff. I, well, mean, I, I congratulated Stanton for not reaching over and just slapping the fire out of him to shut him up. Because well, Larry, yeah, Larry yeah. let the, the panel get completely out of control when Sherman yeah. took it over. Yeah. Of course, well, Larry has stuff. no control. Let's just be honest about it. Yeah, he that's has right. No control. He's poor interviewer, but and of course Aldrin, he fell off the fence again. Maybe he'll just stay on the ground now. The astronaut you know, <laughs> flip flopped a couple times, you know, and that's what makes it hard. You know, you get these guys that, that go public, and then you know one day they're saying one thing, the next day they're saying something else. And I'm oh. 65 years old. I, I used to think that. I'd know the truth in my lifetime, and I doubt very seriously I will. But I hope that what I'm doing will benefit my kids or my grandchildren, and, and that's the reason I keep doing it. Yeah. You know, David, you said something on a previous show, and maybe we can get a comment from our guest about it. You felt in the next few years there's going to be some kind of defining event. Now, would you yeah. expand, now that we've got you here, and Dennis has the truth <laughs> secret Roswell, is listening to you, and he's going to interrogate you for the next two or three minutes we have left here. Tell us, what did you mean by that? You know, sometimes you just have gut feelings about things. And I don't know, Gene, if it's because now that we're doing the Paracast for a year and a half, I'm simply paying more attention to these topics. It looks like UFOs are being reintroduced in a way to the public. It seems like there is an increase in the interest in this topic. It seems like we see, we see little cracks in the secrecy. And, I, you know, it's almost, I almost feel like at this point in my life, the reason I've gotten involved with this again is because there is something coming. And I always hesitate to talk about this on the show because I try to keep you know, certain aspects of my own beliefs, as they were, um, out of this program, because uh, I don't know that I necessarily am completely committed to some of what goes on in my head. But I just get the feeling that that we're on the cusp of something right now, specifically. And now I'll tell you what really makes me think about this. I There was that one episode back in, I believe, in the 50s. I'm going to just paraphrase this, where... UFOs were seen above this, these two different missile silos in the middle of the country, and they switched off a whole bunch of, of ICBMs sitting in the ground. Right. They basically deactivated them. And I'm forgetting, it was one of the people who was involved with the Disclosure Project. Um, his name is on the tip of my brain. No, not, not, not Greer, no, no. Greer, of course, being the one behind the Disclosure Project. But no, one of his witnesses, who was apparently either a base commander or one of the guys in the hole at the time, Okay. Um, who, who witnessed this, who basically uh, is the one that's come forward to talk about these. It was one episode in one base, but then supposedly within a, you know, a month time frame in another base fairly close to it, 
This also happened. And actually, James Fox just sent me and Gene copies of uh, Out of the Blue, which I'm going to be watching tonight. And I know that this particular military guy makes an appearance in that documentary talking about this episode. I just get the feeling, and, and this is this is where now I'm going to go on a just real big limb, and uh, you know half of our listeners are going to think I finally snapped. But finally, well, you know, but here's the thing: <laughs> what if, what if, check it out, what if there was an attempt by someone to instigate a nuclear episode, and that attempt was publicly stopped by a craft. I mean, you want to talk about, you know, people talk about a UFO landing on the White House lawn. I say the hell with that. What happens when there's a, an attempt at doing a nuclear event somewhere, and one of these crafts shows up and stops it? Then what do you have? And and again, this is so far-fetched, and I and realize... So do you mean an attempted attack or just testing a weapon like the North Koreans tried to No, do? no, an attempt at an attack. If someone's going to try to use a nuclear weapon in a destructive, nefarious way, and that episode will be publicly stopped. Don't you think that's the reason that they probably are here in the first place? Is no, I don't. We don't do that? Absolutely not. I do not believe that at all. I think no. that is a projection of human hope that has nothing to do with the reality of what this is. And when well, we say... The atomic bomb was tested 100 miles from here two years prior to the incident. Right. I think there's an interest in our involvement in this, but this idea that there is an attempt from them to stop us from doing this is kind of like making a statement that a scientist watching an ant hill and watching two ant colonies battle it out is going to intercede and stop the ants from destroying each other because of some altruistic sense of That's saving That's true ants. on this planet, but it's not true if we go out into space. No, 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 no. The notion that somehow... The talking monkeys that we are are going to present some incredible threat to a species that has figured out how to travel interdimensionally is a projection of human vanity. I think it's ridiculous to even make that statement. Uh, and Dennis, nothing personal, yeah. but this idea that we're somehow going to threaten creatures from, you know, whether it's another star system whether it's from another dimension or whether it's an, a species that has been on this planet longer than we have and is actually the top of the food chain of this planet, which I suspect probably closer to the truth than any of the other stuff being thrown around. Possibility. All right. That, Down that, to about three or four minutes, David. I just yeah, want I to know. know. I know. But we have to do like a whole episode about this topic. But ultimately, I think that what's going to happen is that they will stop this in order to remind us of what we really are, not what we like to think we are or we project ourselves out to be. I think that if anything, there is going to be, and certainly, look, you know, humanity could certainly use us at this point, a real serious reality check about our own level of evolution and our vanity, which is completely well, if you remember, out of President Reagan made that statement. He made that very statement at the United Nations that maybe we need intervention from out there to you know, get us to get along here on the planet. Uh, Ronald Reagan was also suffering from Alzheimer's and referred to his wife as mommy. So, you know, I mean, I know Reagan said that stuff, but for my money, Reagan wasn't shooting with all cylinders. So, you know, he was, and shooting, I understand. He was shooting more than, than most of the presidents have. Him and... Him well, and uh, <laughs> look, uh, political you know, discussion will tell come you, on. Let me no, we you don't want to do that. We uh, let me answer you quickly, though. And, sure, and sure. Give Schmidt and Kerry some credit. Their book has some new witnesses in it. And I think 
the way they explain those witnesses, I really believe that the government, if they get a hold of that, are going to feel some pressure because they give some very good uh, indications on how the cover-up took place in their book with these new witnesses and, and what they described took place. Mm-hmm. And I really, honestly, and I'm optimistic and maybe shouldn't be, but I really believe that the government is going to have their hand forced within several years to come straight on this thing. No, they got bigger fish to fry than this. And when you say the government, we have to be specific about whether we're talking about the administrators and the bureaucrats or the corporate oligarchy that actually runs the country. Because when you talk about the government now, we have to talk. Or are we talking about the military complex that does whatever it wants? You know, there was this. And not to take it in the political direction, David, we're down there, to thirty seconds. That's I good. This that's fine. You know, if you want a conspiracy, I think it was Hillary Clinton that in the Democratic presidential debate that was on uh, CNN this week mentioned that the president and the Pentagon are doing whatever they want at this point and that the American people has no control over it. So well, that's, that's been going on for years. This is the beginning <laughs> of a new dialogue, and there's a lot we want to talk to Dennis about. Plenty more to talk episodes. about. Yeah. We want you, you back again and again. Thank you for joining us. Whenever you like. At my, your convenience. Thanks, Dennis. <laughs> Thanks for the good work. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. AJ, before we got started, we were talking about the fact that this is be more and more interest in UFOs these days. And I gather there are ongoing cases happening in your country. Could you maybe brief our listeners about it? Yes, absolutely. Gene and David, how are you guys? Well, Good. i got to tell you that we have lots of cases going on all over Brazil all the time. Now, I just recently have been to the Amazon where, where we, have a, we have a hot spot for UFOs uh, which has been on for, for like 30 years or so and in a few weeks I have gathered uh, a lot of new cases and also we have new cases coming from the northeast region of Brazil, from the south of Brazil, from the area in Minas Gerais where aliens were captured during the Virginia case back in January 2006. And you name it, we have cities all over the country when, uh, where UFOs are being observed and, and, and filmed and photographed and everything. AJ, if you have that much activity and if you have hot spots of activity where there's stuff going on on a, on a regular basis, why are we not seeing much better photographic evidence? And along those same lines, where is the substantial video evidence that people should be gathering with all of the cameras and the cell phone cameras that exist? What's going on with photographic and video evidence? Well, actually, I received quite a lot of photographs and videos, most of them made with digital cameras, which are very popular these days, even in Brazil. They used to be much popular in other parts of the world, but not, now they are very popular here. Now, I get something like a dozen new UFO pictures, supposed UFO pictures, almost every week by email. People send me from all over the country. But most of them are just uh, teeny things in space, thin things in the sky. Very rarely, I 
get something that is really worth of, of, of spreading. So, so what I do, I get these very good pictures, which are rare. I insist they are rare. I get them sure. in a proper resolution, and I put it on our website. Sometimes I send all over the world to, to other files or for other UFO researchers, so they com can compare with the cases that they have in their countries. Now, as far as videos are concerned, we haven't had many very interesting UFO videos or supposed UFO videos lately. The last one I can re recollect, I got like by May, late May, there was a fleet of uh, boss of light, of, of, I believe there are UFOs just like the flotillas in, in Mexico, and we have one of them filmed in the seashores of the state of Sao Paulo. There were like 60 or 70 spheres in that video, which lasted like a couple of minutes or so, showing the these flotillas, these UFO fleets, they are also in Brazil. Now, you remember that just in May 20, we had a great case in Lima, Peru, which is just next door to Brazil, and a flotilla, a fleet of UFOs, was, was filmed there for over 30 minutes by the local TV network, and, and in the most in uh, most uh, in the biggest neighboring area of Lima in the uh, the region of San Isidro in the, in the capital Lima, so it was a big thing. Now we are having these cases while they happen in other countries, like uh, if we have cases like going on in England or in Finland or Australia, you can search your files because much probably you can get information from readers, from people who visit our website, sent to us by email reporting cases very similar to those ones in other countries, also here in Brazil. This um, flotilla that you're describing, AJ, what were the shape of the craft? How high up were they? Did anybody have an estimation of the size of the individual crafts? Well, of this, uh, the, the, this case that I just mentioned mm -hmm. about the flotilla or the UFO fleet filmed in the seashores of Sao Paulo, there were something between 60 and 70, perhaps 80 spheres. They were all spherical objects and very bright white bright in broad daylight. It was about 11.30 a.m. So broad daylight in a very sunny day. But you, you still the brightness of the objects were so high that people could see them against the sky. Some people took pictures. I got one in very low resolution. And this gentleman who used to work for the fire department in the city of Guarujá, who was also on one of these uh, small airplanes, uh, ultralight uh, professor, ultralight trainer, he filmed this fleet for a couple of minutes. And you can have it pretty clearly uh, when you, you put it on, on a DVD or your computer. How do people in our country get to see these videos? You know, obviously now on the Internet, things like Google Video and YouTube are very popular. Have you been um, transferring these videos onto those kinds of sites, or does your magazine have a site where you host these videos that people can look at them? Well, we have some, some uh, videos at our, our website, which is, by the way, ufo.com.br, BR for Brazil. 
Uh, we mm -hmm. have several readers over there, but uh, not only me, but uh, several of my colleagues down here in Brazil, they're putting lots of videos on YouTube and, and, and in other services such as that. The problem is that when you upload them to YouTube or something, it gets very low resolution. You, you can't right. see very clearly what the, the objects are. So the best way is to have a higher resolution uh, footage or sure. file that can be exchanged between the UFO researchers. And then we come to another problem that actually around the world, the channels of communication between UFO researchers are not very clear. Now, we have some channels of communications with lots of UFO researchers in the United States, in Europe, and all over the world. We, the Brazilian UFO magazine, I have because I have been in these places. I have many friends uh, in the UFO community in many countries, but most of my colleagues don't, as well as Chilean UFO researchers, Argentinian UFO researchers, Peruvian UFO researchers, you name it. Most of them don't have that, that easy access to other UFO communities in other countries that it, they could share information. And this is a shame because by now, after six years of UFO research all over the world, we should have at least a unified data bank with files, cases, photos, films, everything that could be contributed to by people from all over the world. But we still don't have it. In 60 years, we are not we haven't been able to build up a unified worldwide data bank. Well, you see, the problem I see also, AJ, is that the UFO field can't get along. It's been that way since the 1950s. The UFO field can't get along. People can't get together to look for something. They're so wrapped up in their personal or business agendas that you don't have this kind yeah. of cooperation. Yeah, right. Do you have the same problem in South America as you do here in the States? Because the arguing never stops here. Unfortunately, we have here the same problem. Perhaps not as much as the United States, but you know, I've, I've been uh, personally lecturing in several countries, and I can tell that you, you find some UFO communities in some countries that, that get along pretty well, like in England or, or in Italy, or, but also they have lots of problems in several countries, like the United States. It's, a, it's a very fragmented. You have several schools of thought in ufology, and most people don't get along with each other. That's, it's a pity. There's a lot of ego involved all over the mm -hmm. world, not only Brazil, but also the United States. I don't know. I, I have a feeling that this thing is from the very nature of the UFO phenomena that keep us in, in such a way that we can't handle the entire truth that we have contact with coming from the uh, sightings and abductions and everything that we're doing all over the world. It's kind of take us from the balance and leave us, uh, you know, experience some sort of confusion in sometimes. I don't know if well, I made myself clear. Well, you know, the thing is, AJ, that 
it seems a lot of the people we've had on the Paracast are not really researchers. They're book authors. They write books. They do the least amount of research they can in order to publish a book, and that seems to be their primary motivation. They basically are selling a product. Many of them don't seem particularly interested in actually understanding what is really going on. They simply want to sell books. And when an author has something that they think is unique or exclusive to their book, they don't want to share that with other researchers. We, we recently had on two of the people who have been known for being very involved researchers in Roswell, and these two authors told us that they were the only researchers doing real work in the field and that they didn't feel a need to share their findings with other people who were doing research. Now, of course, in scientific research, peer review, having other people look at what you do and verify it, is a very important and long-time accepted part of the process. There doesn't seem to be any sort of thing along those lines in ufology. Yeah, it's a shame what you tell me. But I guess it's all over the world. It's a, I guess it is from the whole nature of the UFO phenomena. But it shouldn't be that way. You know, the real UFO researchers, the real ones, the ones that are really devoted to the subject, really love it, who, who have this compassion, this passion for having the truth out, you know, these guys, they do share. You know, this is from my personal experiences dealing with people all over the world. The real UFO researchers that I've met in my entire life, they do share material. They are not selling products, or sometimes they can sell products, but they do share. Because, you know, I believe, and I guess this, some of these people also that I described just believe as well, there is no way one of us can reach the truth about the UFO phenomena by himself or herself. Mm -hmm. It is a collective thing. Mm. We have to do it together. Now, I may have a few pieces of this big puzzle, but I won't get anywhere if I can't see your pieces or if I can't see uh, any other UFO researchers in the United States or in Finland or in Australia or South Africa pieces. So we must all put our pieces together. We must share. That's the main, you know, thing in ufology, the basic principles of ufology, is sharing your data, sharing your information, make your information available to other searchers. Because if I have something that I can use to contribute with someone else's research, you know, I, I will certainly contribute to the, un to the understanding of the UFO phenomena. And from that, me and the other researchers and everybody else will benefit. But for me, it's a basic principle. Uh, it, mm -hmm. it has, you know, the information has to be shared with other people. Well, sure. Absolutely. So, AJ, in the years you've been doing this, tell us, we'd like to know, who are the more reputable, the more uh, productive researchers that you have encountered or worked with in your years of doing this? Well, I have worked or exchanged information or made friends with lots of UFO researchers all over the world. But I would say, like, United States, I have a great respect for Peter Davenport, as I have a great mm -hmm. respect yes, we had him for on the show. He was Roger really good. Lear from, sure. from California. Mm -hmm. Roger Lear, right. You know, mm -hmm. Yes, I could mention lots of names. Uh, I have a great respect for Ken Friedman. 
I have great respect for Bill Hopkins, great, great respect for David Jacobs. These are guys that know what they are doing and they have contributed to the, to the field in, in, in a lot. Now, if you move to other countries uh, in Italy, I have great, great respect for Roberto Pinotti, for instance. In Portugal, we have Joaquim Fernandes, who's a great name in the Portuguese UFO researchers community. Now, we have great names in all over the world. Now, we have in Australia, Glenn Mackay, who's a great UFO researcher, a great seeker for the truth. And you find people like that all over the world. It's great when you can sit with them, either in conferences, in, you know, behind the scene conference, and look at them each one else in, in their eyes and, you know, exchange experiences and exchange information. I've been doing that with lots of people like Colin Andrews, who's a great guy also, a great UFO researcher of the crop circles and so many others. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. Here's an offer for your listener. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA. Or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. And you're speaking with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney of the Paracast. We have as our guest today A.J. Gavard, who is the publisher of UFO Magazine in Brazil. And he's telling us about some of the people he's found to be some of the more reputable researchers. Now, the thing is, A.J., that when you have researchers, this is all good and fine, but doing research, we think, means having an open mind. And what we tend to find with some of these people who you've mentioned that we've had on the show is that a lot of them, well, you take a good example, Stanton Freeman, someone who we've had on a number of times we, we very much like and we respect as one of the longest-running researchers in this field. At the same time, AJ, what we've discovered speaking with Stanton is that he has very specific ideas and theories about what's going on 
And it's interesting, he often says that one of his rules for speaking to people about these things is that a lot of skeptics will say, don't bother me with the facts, my mind's already made up. And what we've discovered speaking with Stanton, well, but Stanton, unfortunately, we found sometimes he falls into this trap himself. You know, we tried speaking about alternate theories of where these things might be really coming from. And for Stanton, it they have to be coming from another star system. He won't even talk about any other possibilities. And I think as as you said, we've been doing this research, or people have been researching the field for 60 years, and in 60 years, there haven't been really many new ideas, and really as a result, we haven't gotten any answers, have we? Well, we have lots of ideas where where these uh, visitors may come from. Mm-hmm. Now, Stan is, is a very, uh, well, of a dominant uh, def- defendant of the extraterrestrial hypothesis of right. the people that yes. I mentioned. They also uh, believe in, in other uh, possible origins for the aliens, like uh, other dimensions, whatever. Now, you have Jackson Valer, who has a very totally different idea where the aliens come from. Well, I believe that all these people have, like I told before, pieces to contribute to this big puzzle which is posed posed to us by the UFO phenomenon. I myself, I have uh, a feeling that the aliens, they can manipulate even or both time and space. It means they can come from other solar systems, other other systems uh, nearby or very far away, perhaps all of them within this galaxy, the Galacta, perhaps from other galaxies, they can come from other solar solar systems. But they can also, in some way that we still don't understand, or at least most of us don't, because a few scientists may do understand, you know, they can manipulate time in such a way that they can come here uh, from uh, different realities, different realms of time and space. It's very strange to think about that. Now, the UFO phenomenon is something that puzzles us and challenges us very much. Now, you want an example? Well, sure. we have many, but let me give you another one. It's very common to talk to a UFO witness who comes to us and says, like this gentleman that I just met in the Amazon five weeks ago, he came to say to, to me and said, hey, AJ, I want to describe you the, the, the thing that I saw in the sky this other day, and it was cylinder-like in shape. It has a light in, in one portion of it, another light in the other portion of it, but there was, there was another light in the middle of the subject which had a color that I have never seen before. And Gene, David, I have heard that many, many times in my life. People telling me that they have seen a UFO with a light of a color that they have, ne- they have never seen before. Can you imagine a color that you have never seen before? Something that's not red, blue, green, purple, yellow, orange, whatever. A color that we don't know. It's just a small example of how the UFO phenomena is. You know, it's very complex. We are only grasping the tip of a big iceberg. We don't know the size of the iceberg that is underneath the water, below the, the waterline. 
but it's, it must be very, very big. You know, sometimes I have the feeling that I, it doesn't matter what I do to investigate the UFOs. And I'm, I'm, I'm being very personal here. You know, I'm doing this for 30 some years. Doesn't matter what I do. Sometimes the truth or, or the real knowledge about UFOs, the understanding of their nature and their complexity, seems to me so far away that I think, well, my God, what have I been doing for the last three decades that I still have so many doubts about it? And again, it seems to me that part of the very nature of the UFO phenomenon, not to let itself be known, be totally known by us. It doesn't matter how much you dig, it doesn't matter how much you investigate, it seems to me that you always be so far away from truth. You'll never be too close to know the entire truth. Do you think that there's possibly an area of deception involved by the UFO forces or beings, whatever they are? Well, I believe that uh, what we have to have in mind, what I guess that most of our listeners do have in mind, but some people don't realize that we are being visited by several, many, many different races and who come from many different planets or many different places, if I don't want to call it a planet, places and times, you know, and they all have their agenda. It's very likely that many of them have the same objectives toward Earth, but a few of them may have very different ideas for starting this approach to us. Do you understand what I mean? So some of these guys, uh, let's call them like that, some of them may be so different objectives. Maybe they are deceptive. Maybe they are doing what they are doing in such a way that they are cheating us as to say, cheating us to get what they want. They are treating us in such a way that will prevent us to know more about them or these specific races. You know, once I met Dr. J. Allen Hynek, he came to Brazil back in 1983. I was only 21 years old at that time. We had this long conversation and at that time I, I spoke some English. A little worse than it is now, and he wanted to talk to me about a few things during the, his stay in Brasilia, where he was giving that lecture. He was giving a lecture also at an international conference, and he said something to me that is, I always had it in my mind. He said that the aliens are playing dice with us, but mm. also they are teaching us the rules of the game. We um, have to be smart to understand them. <laughs> so we can play with them. Yeah, but you know, AJ, when you say learning the rules of a game, a game is a winner and there is a loser. So based on what you're saying, in the game of the interaction with these beings, someone is going to win and someone is going to lose. And if we assume for a moment well, that that is what's going on, not, well, not necessarily. It's just a game, you know. He posed that word, game, as he could use any other. You know, I don't think that uh, there is a loser and a winner in this. Or perhaps we are all the winners sometimes. Because there has to be a greater motive, a greater reason for why they are coming to Earth. 
Sure, as any other civilization in the universe reaches such a point of uh, technological advancement, technological progress, they would start searching for other forms of life in the universe. They start flying to other planets, just like we're doing. Now, we are going, or we have been to the moon back a few decades ago. We've been sending uh, robots to take pictures of Mars, to, to shake the rocks in Mars and see if there is some, any form of life. We're taking, we're sending probes to take pictures of the rings of Saturn or the moons of Neptune, whatever. Why we are doing that? It's because it's of the human nature, you know, not to be confined in, in its boundary. The human nature compels us to go away from Earth, to go further, every time further, or far away more and more often. But right now, we can only reach uh, what we can call the backyard of Earth, which is our surroundings. But give us time. You know, right now we only have technology capable of sending, you know, these probes to Mars every six or eight months or something to send probes to take pictures of other planets in the solar system, whatever. You know, perhaps in 20 years from now and 30 years from now, with the advancement of the astronautical technology by us, we'll be able to go to other planets. The far we go, the closer we will be to other civilizations because they live there. So a contact with them, the other civilizations in the universe, is something inevitable. It, ha it will have to happen sometime. Now, perhaps these aliens, some of them, all of them, I don't know, perhaps they are aware that this process is going on. You know, what is going to be the result of it? And the result of it is if we, the astros, perhaps there are other planets in the universe, such, just like us, but let's talk about us. If we don't self-destroy with our acts of insanity, if we prosper despite the global warming or whatever, if we prosper and reach to a, an advanced stage of technology in astronautical terms, scientific in general, we will be able to go to other planets to visit them. Sure. Aren't we, AJ, kind of viewing the alien agenda in our own eyes? If we're dealing with another civilization that grew up under different surroundings, perhaps their motives are different. Hey there, listeners. Have you ever thought about hosting your website? You know where you can actually host your blog or your web page? Well, I'll tell you where to go. Host I can. Host I can. And as a matter of fact, they provide all our hosting, too, for this site. And guess what? Their price starts at only $7 a month. How could you go wrong? It's reliability and speed speaks for itself. And that's why we're able to provide you with this radio show that you're listening to right now. It's Host I Can. Give them a try. You'll be glad you did. To learn more about Host I Can, go to this website, techbroadcasting.com. That's techbroadcasting.com slash host. Techbroadcasting.com slash host. And you'll learn more about Host I Can.
My motives are to tell you you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. Our friend from Brazil, A.J. Guevara, joins us. He is the editor-publisher of the UFO magazine in Brazil. And, okay, so, A.J., let's look at that. Alien motivations, how can we look at what they are, whatever they are, in our own eyes? Because we may be quite wrong as to what we assume they're doing or why they're doing it. Well, actually, oh, yeah, before you sure. answer, A.J., well, here's the thing, A.J., and, and I want to, Gene is exactly right. And I was going to ask a, a different variation of this question in that you mentioned before human nature being one that wants to explore. But human nature is just that. It's human nature. And if we look at the history of uh, the exploration of this planet, for the most part, human exploration of the Earth was done for economic or political reasons, not really altruistic reasons of learning or wanting to expand the mind. There was always, for the most part, a commercial agenda behind the voyages that took Cristobal Colon to the New World. This was not done because it was something that was good for his health. This was done because of empire and expansion. Yes, but besides that, some people who have made the big conquests all over the world, they have this passion for finding out new lands, new people. So not all of the, the discoveries and conquests, the expansion of the known uh, civilization in the Middle Ages or something, not all of them were malevolent. The people that were found were conquested, you know what I mean? I, I believe that some of the people in charge of these new discoveries, they had actually a great impulse for doing so because they were people who wanted to know more about this world, to make it smaller and smaller. Now, we also have to apply the concept that the mo most of these discoveries and, uh, and conquests that you described, they happened many, many years ago, decades, hundreds of years ago. If we had any land that's still left to be discovered in this planet now, we are a different civilization today. We're not like we were before. Now, we are always evolving technologically, but also spiritually. We've been talking about global warming, for instance, for many years. But actually, it came to a point back a few years ago, two, three years ago, when there was enough people in the planet to wake up for that problem and to start doing something. Now, what I wanted to say is that my point here is that it comes a time in everyone's life when you have to do what you have to do, and when you feel yourself ready to start doing something perhaps different than, than have what you have been doing before. Now, about global warming, we haven't done almost anything, nothing at all, for decades. But now, many of us, and the number of us doing something to prevent it, to get rid of this big problem or to, to live with it in a better way, the number of us is getting bigger and bigger every day because people are growing conscious that something has to happen. It will happen more and more in the future. More and more people will be aware of the things that have to be done so we can become a better species. We can become a better race. 
I, uh, well, I believe that we have to start with ourselves. Well, each one of us has to start doing his own uh, homework and, and get better. We have to be better persons so we can make this world better for everyone. Now it may sound very fictitious to lots of people because we live in a, in a worldwide society where 6.6 billion people are struggling to survive. Some 3 billion people are starving. Some 2 billion people are in some sort of conflict, wars of, of any kind. And at least 1 billion, of, 1 billion human beings are in wars because of religious problems. Because your God is not my God, so I go and kill you and you go kill me and my son goes and kill your son. You know what? This kind of thing is still going on as we speak. In the year 2007, this is absolutely amazing. But someday, these problems will get less and less, and we will be a better species. Because this is the whole purpose of, of, of existing, is to evolve. It, it is a natural law. We have to evolve as we grow a conscience. Now, it can be applied to ufology as well, because more and more people all over the world are growing a higher standard of consciousness about UFOs. Now, I've, I've been this for about 30 years. I started very young when I was uh, 11 to 12, something like that. But, but when I was 20, I started looking at my the world, and ufology in particular, with the more mature eyes, and I can compare, let's say, the last two decades at least, and I, and I can tell you that what I sense from talking to people here in Brazil or in the places where I have traveled to all over the world is that the consciousness about UFOs, the presence of these civilizations in our planet, civilizations that come from other planets, planets, from other situations, places, times, this consciousness is getting bigger and bigger. It's more and more consistent every day. We will reach a point in which this will grow globally and will be more open and receptive to the idea that someday, doesn't matter what we do, this is my belief, I'm absolutely certain of that, someday we will have a official, open, and worldwidely contact with the ex some, some or perhaps many of these extraterrestrial forces that are coming to this planet. And I don't see that as a bad thing. I think that will happen, and it will be better, or it will be good for all of us. It will be better than we are now. We will be better persons when we can have a chance you know, to perhaps uh, do something like uh, get along with other civilizations, uh, either here or when we have astronautical capabilities in other places. Now, it will have to happen someday. AJ, recently I've been reading a lot about a situation in an island, and correct my pronunciation of this, Colades. Um, That's perfect. Colades. That's the name of the island. Colades. And I guess this was going on a while ago, but we don't know much about this. Certainly in the United States, I don't think there's been much written about this. Can you tell us about the Colades situation? What happened there and what you know about it? Well, Colades is an island which is about six miles from the capital of the state of Pará in the Amazon. 
and the capital is named Belém. Now, it's by the Amazon River, mm -hmm. such as Mosqueiro Island. Those places in those islands, plus the fluvial areas of the Amazon rivers, some river banks, some places like that, they are called Salgado region. And in that area, which is very, very big, we have in a, an astounding amount of sightings starting back in the 70s. We have four all the time. But in the 70s, for some reason, on 75 and 76, we have lots of cases being reported, especially in Colaris Island, which is a big, big island. And eventually, at the beginning of 1977, the boss of light and the other formats of UFOs that were constantly seen in the sky, especially at night, they would start coming closer and closer to the small population areas, the small villages, generally fishermen villages. And for some reason, those balls of light start pursuing people and hurting people, attacking people, as they direct the people beams of light came out from the ships and would hit the people in such a way that they would develop bruises mostly in the chest, but sometimes in, in the size of the neck. And because of that, and because some of the people were fainted, it couldn't recover conscious only a few minutes or hours after, in an anemic process, an anemic sensation, the, the sponsor of light were called suck, suck phenomena, because it was believed that they had been taking blood off from people. And this is a fact. We had a doctor, uh, Velaide Cecim Carvalho, who verified that people prior to those attacks were very healthy. But after the attacks, they were not as healthy and they had missing blood. They had not missing time, in the, as we have in ufology abductions, but they had missing blood. People who, were, who lost some amount of blood, who were in, in most cases, anemic. Now, the case is starting to get worse and worse. So what happened is that the local uh, villages, the people start asking the government to do something about it, to protect it, as the government was supposed to. And the Brazilian Air Force decided to investigate the situation. And they built up a team of military to undertake a secret and official operation of investigation of those phenomena in that Salgado area, especially in the islands of Mosqueiro and in Colares. It was quite a thing. The guy who was called upon to be the commander of that operation was Wiranger Holanda, a very brave guy, a very, very, well, a decorated guy who was uh, recognized for being one of the most distinguished military in, in the Amazon. And we don't see Linda, 
he was also selected by his superior to be the head of the operation saucer because he had the previous knowledge about UFOs. He believed in UFOs. He had seen one when he was a teenager. He had great knowledge about uh, this subject as he was an, uh, uh, some sort of a, a student, a student of this subject. And he built up a team of about three dozen military, and they were sent to Colares and Mosquero to start Operation Saucer in secret. And the goal, their goals were three. First, to talk to as many witnesses as possible, especially the ones who has been who have been attacked, and get from there from them all information available about this phenomenon. Second, they were sent to the jungle, to the beaches of the Amazon River in that island, fully equipped with state-of-art cameras, photo and video cameras, actually not video, film cameras, film, Super right. 8 and Super 16 millimeters. They were sent with them. And third, look, this is official. This is from the documentation that we got from the Brazilian Air Force. The, the third goal was try to engage in some sort of interaction with the intelligences behind the phenomenon, if there was an intelligence. Now, isn't that amazing? These guys, these three dozen guys, were sent to the jungle to try to have a contact with aliens, officially and secretly. Now, all the three goals were pretty much accomplished. They have spoken with over 2,000 witnesses and about a few hundred victims. Yes, we're talking about a few hundred. We estimate some like 600 people attacked in like a 10 or 12 months frame. And they, in most of these cases, the attacks in the sightings where no attack were performed uh, were transcribed into the official report of the Operation Saucer. We have over 200 pages of them. Now, as to the second goal, to document as as best as possible, as best as possible, uh, the phenomena in the island of Colares and Mosquero, about 500 pictures of the objects were taken, and you can see nine different objects in all of these pictures. Nine, nine different formats, and about four rolls of films, totalizing 16 hours of films were done, were obtained during the sky watch that the military did in Mosquero and Colaris Island. And as to the third goal, now this is very big, they were sent to the jungle to try to engage in some sort of interaction with the aliens, and it actually happened by December 1977, and by the way, the, the operation started on September 1977. Four months after that, in December 1977, just uh, one week before Christmas, uh, the commander of the operation saucer, William Jolanda, was with uh, a, a few of his men in a specific place in the Amazon River when they saw a big, one of those big crafts coming over them. They stopped their boat, they parked their boat in, in the, in the riverbank and observed the, the object, which was a cylinder-like of the size of a 727 Boeing, almost touched ground on the other side of the river, but it didn't touch ground. 
it was like standing, you know, a very big cylinder standing. And from the top of that craft, a door was open, and an alien creature, just like a human creature, two arms, two legs, a body, a head, using a suit, using a helmet. This creature came out from the top of that almost 300 feet long cylinder. It came floating from the top of it to almost the same level, the same high as William Giolanda's boat and his men, right? they were. They looked at each other, no communication was performed, not even telepathically, and during a couple of minutes, they exchanged sights, they looked at each other, and the alien went back to the ship. And the ship went away with a noise like air conditioning noise. Did they get any pictures, AJ? Not of this particular sighting, no, because they were so surprised to see that that contact happened so close in such a way that they did not take any picture of that situation. But they did took pictures, they did take pictures actually, of the same spaceship several other times when it was flying by, when it was flying over the spots where they made their surveillance, their night surveillance. We have several of these pictures, but they couldn't film or photograph the object when this closing encounter happened. Now, look at the, the extension, the complexity of this. Three dozen military from the Brazilian Air Force were sent to the jungle to perform a secret task to undertake the Operation Saucer, which had one of the goals was to have or to try to establish some sort of interaction, communication, if you will, with the intelligence behind the phenomena in those islands. And they did so, and it happened. The contact happened between the military and alien forces. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene and I love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your thoughts with us, send your messages to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to check out our website at theparacast.com, where you can download past episodes of the show for free and visit our dynamic discussion forums. Also, please patronize our sponsors. Tell them that you heard their ads on the Paracast. They'll appreciate it, and we will too. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of 
mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Alien Contact on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're speaking today with A.J. Gavert, publisher of UFO Magazine in Brazil, who's telling us a rather amazing story about an actual con contact interaction between the Brazilian military and alien creatures. Now, A.J., of course, many members of our audience are wondering, how did you find this out? Were you able to extract this information from the Brazilian government, and if so, how? Yeah, let me tell you. Well, it, did, it happened in, in, back in 1977, mm -hmm. and uh, there were rumors in the Brazilian UFO community that this happened, but we never knew the extension of this, how, how deep it was. But right. anyway, back in the beginning, in the early 80s, I went to Belém, and I, I tried to talk to that time he was a captain. I tried to talk with Captain Olinda, and he took me and he received me in his office in the headquarters of the four, uh, the fourth regional aerial command in the Amazon. But he told me very clearly that he could not speak to me about the operation saucer. We spoke in general about UFOs, and he, were, he was not as specific at any point. Mm -hmm. Then again, about 10 years later, in 1992, I looked for this guy again. He was actually in Rio de Janeiro by then. And we met, and he again told me, hey, AJ, I'm sorry, I still can talk to you about it. But in a few years, I left this window open. Now, five years after that, in 1997, in June, I was in a national TV program which is seen by everyone in Brazil because it goes on a Sunday night, every Sunday night here for two hours. It's called Programa Fantástico. And I was interviewed for like 15 minutes or so, and I spoke about the official documents of the Brazilian Air Force that we got from people uh, in several headquarters all over Brazil. Nothing coming from Capitão We had like 200 pages, two dozen pictures, and no films, whatever, but we had 200, pictures, 200 pages and 20 pictures or so. And mm -hmm. I showed the, this material on TV and said, and said to the, the people watching the show, see, the Brazilian Air Force, the Brazilian government knows about UFOs and has documents about it, and it's the name that UFOs exist. It's denied its knowledge about it. Now, I did so in that program. And in the very early morning of the other day, a Monday, William Jolanda called me. He was living upstate Rio, and he was retired. And he said, hey, AJ, remember you looked for me two times in the past and I couldn't talk to you? Well, my friend, 
I am retired now and I don't have any more commitment to the Brazilian Air Force. And I realize that what you're doing is the right thing. And if you want to talk to me about the Operation Saucer now, I can tell you everything that happened. Just come to my place. Now, I live a thousand miles from Rio, but immediately I got a plane, I went to Rio, I, I, I met with my co-editor who lives in Rio, and we drove three hours to North State of Rio, and we met this gentleman, and we spent two days talking to him. We became friends, and he gave us a long and detailed interview describing with a great memory everything that happened from the beginning to the end. And he also disclosed several information that we are not aware of, such as the Operation Saucer was canceled just after he reported to his, to his superiors, Orlando reported to his superiors, that the close encounters with the, close encounter with the alien took place one week before Christmas. Now, the mm -hmm. operation saucer was supposed to go on for months and months. And, but when the uh, Oranger went back after that close encounter, he went back to Belém to talk to his superior in the headquarters of the 4th Regional Area Command. He was told by the commander of that field to shut down Operation Saucer immediately and to handle over to the headquarters all papers, all photos, all films, everything, and not talk about that to anyone. That was very surprising and very disappointing to him because he wanted to go on. He wanted to pursue that. He wanted to go ahead and, and, and try to get more explicit and more communication with those aliens that were operating in the Amazon. And he was forbidden to do so officially. But with Roger Landa, during the interview that I performed with him on, on uh, June uh, 1997, he described how he and a few of his men decided to go on with the researchers, with the, the investigations, on their own time. And they did so. And with Angel Landa had many other sightings of UFOs, took several other pictures that eventually later he had to handle to his headquarters. And he was abducted at least two times while he's sleeping in his house in the military village, which is by the airfield. He was abducted at least two times. Now, this is a big story. When it came to our knowledge, me and my, my co-editor, we did this big, this long interview. We had it spread all over. We put it in the magazine. We also uh, called some of the TV networks in Brazil to let them know that this was happening because I realized my magazine, it's very small. It had a very small circulation. I couldn't hold that information to our circulation because I realized that it has to go nationally. Everybody should know what happened. I didn't hold the material for me. And I asked people from different TV networks and, TV and national circulation magazines, much larger than mine, which are not specialized in ufology, to come and talk to him with his permission, of course, and, and then we, we made this history public. And since then, 
we, I have been pursuing information about UFOs in the Amazon. I've been many times there. I have made lots of friends among the, the other researchers, among the victims, among the doctors that were sent to take care of the victims, etc. And just recently, Jean and David, just recently, like five weeks ago, I was there, and I knew of another military who also had great knowledge of what happened, who was willing to talk. Now, because I've been so many times in Belém, the capital of the state of Pará, close to Polaris and Mosquero, and because I've been uh, talking in TV shows over there about it, uh, saying that the Brazilian Air Force should come clean about it, you know, giving statements where I say that the Brazilian Air Force is hiding information and it shouldn't because information should be, should be known by everybody and etc. And because of that, this gentleman called me at my, my hotel in Belen and he said he wanted to talk to me. And we spoke and he agreed that he would give me an interview. And I assigned someone from Belém to do that interview because the other morning I had to fly to Brazil. We were having a big, big calls, chaos in the aerial system and I couldn't miss that flight. And I came back to my town and this gentleman that I assigned did an interview with this colonel, which is called Fernando Brasil. And I'll be back to Belém in a few weeks to talk personally with him, as we, I have done with several other military you know, who, who knew anything about the operation saucer. Now, this is a very big, big thing here, very big thing. Now, we did a, a big show here called uh, Operação Mistério, Linha Direta Operação Mistério, in Portuguese, of one hour and prime time showing the operation saucer back two years ago. Then the History Channel decided to send someone to Brazil and a team from, uh, of producers from Chicago, the Tower Productions, they came to Brazil and uh, helped them to make a documentary which was called Brazil's Roswell. And yeah, but been- AJ, we're just about running out of time. And I know that when you go back to continue investigations, we're going to want to talk to you further about this. So tell our listeners one more time where to learn more about the things you do. Well, those of you who can uh, understand or read Portuguese would find it very easy to access our website, which is ufo.com.br. For the ones who don't speak Portuguese, you can go for the pictures. Just hit on them, and you see films and photos of UFOs in Brazil, and especially material from the military. That is what we specialize in. Hey, that's great. Thank you so much again for joining us on the PowerCast. AJ Gavere, the editor and publisher of the UFO magazine in Brazil. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to have you back real soon to discuss your investigations even further. Thank you, AJ. Thank you, Gene. Thank you, David, for the opportunity. And anytime you want, just let me know. I'll be in your show again. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in The Paracast. 